standards of sexual integrity. My name is Russ Shaw. Season 3, episode 40. Is there economics to what we do with our genitals, listeners? That's the big question today. You're at the table, it's the same old game. Double up the bed. share this with you it's another youtube video audio Um, i'll put a link on the website this is from the austin institute which is a uh, a group of researchers who do like social psych research on family and culture i find this fascinating uh the economy of sexuality the way that the way that sex actually does have an economy very interesting economy isn't just about money and that's something i've learned in studying this and studying addiction that there's economics to everything that we do which i find interesting i used to think that economy and economics all just had to do with money and buying and selling stuff it does but there's if you think about it the, everything we do is for a certain economy isn't it are we as a culture in the western world uh, as far as the family is concerned and the the culture of divorce in this country and just are we living our lives like a wrecking ball what what will be the outcome um, generations later of, of how we're doing this today. Some research, uh, some science for you today. Quick show. Um, anyway, here, this is interesting. I'll have a link to the, uh, the video as well on the website, ASI247.org. Here you go. wonder if romantic relationships are getting increasingly more difficult to navigate these days? Why fewer couples are getting married and later than ever before? Time for a crash course on the economics of sex. Let's think about sex as an exchange, where each person gives the other person something of themselves. It might appear at face value that they are giving the same thing intimate access to each other's bodies, but there's more going on here than meets the eye. Men and women both enjoy sex. We all know that. But what's interesting is how the data tells us that men and women experience sex differently. On average, men have a higher sex drive than women. T-minus 15 seconds, guidance is internal. Blame it on testosterone, call it whatever you want. But on average, men initiate sex more than women. They're more sexually permissive than women, and they connect sex to romance less often than women. Nobody's saying this is the way it ought to be. It's just the way it is. 
Women, on the other hand, are likely to have sex for reasons beyond just simple pleasure. Her motivations for sex often include expressing and receiving love, strengthening commitment, affirming desirability, and relationship security. So in an exchange relationship where men want sex more often than women do, who decides when it will happen? She does, of course. Sex is her resource. Sex and consensual relationships will happen when women want it to. So how do women decide to begin a sexual relationship? Pricing. Women have something of value that men want. Badly. Something men are actually willing to sacrifice for. So how much does sex cost for men? It might cost them nothing but a few drinks and compliments. Or a month of dates and respectful attention. Or all the way up to a lifetime Ooh. promise to share all of his affections, wealth, and earnings with her exclusively. The price varies widely. But if women are the gatekeepers, why don't very many women charge more, so to speak? Because pricing is not entirely up to women. The market value of sex is part of a social system of exchange, an economy, if you will wherein men and women learn from each other and from others what they ought to expect from each other sexually. So sex is not entirely a private matter between two consenting adults. Think of it as basic supply and demand. When supplies are high, prices drop, since people won't pay more for something that's easy to find. But if it's hard to find, people will pay a premium. And the same rings true with sex. Men know that sex is cheap these days, if they know where to look. So how did we get here? How did the market value of sex decline so drastically? Economists often speak of technological shocks that dramatically alter markets. Take pesticides, for example. Pesticides revolutionized agriculture, enabling its mass production on a level unparalleled in the history of human civilization. Lawns became greener, produce became better, and widely available with a marvelous variety. We eat like kings now, and the market has changed forever. Here's another example. Artificial hormonal contraception, or the pill, allowed men and women to have sex while avoiding pregnancy. This was a technological shock that forever altered the mating market by profoundly lowering the cost of sex. It didn't change overnight, but the effects have been, one might say, revolutionary. Before contraception, sex before marriage took place during the search for a mate, someone to marry. Sex didn't necessarily mean marriage, but serious commitment was commonly a requirement for sex. Sex was oriented towards marriage. Don't believe people who say your great-grandparents were secretly as casual about sex as your friends are. They weren't, because to mess around with sex eventually meant, well, becoming parents. Remember the example of pesticides? It turns out that they had unforeseen effects that are wreaking havoc on the environment and weakening the natural ecological systems that we depend on. Scientists believe that because of pesticides, the bee population is dropping at an alarming rate. One third of all the food we eat depends on those bees for pollination. And that's just one example. It is now feared that the overuse of pesticides is throwing ecology as we know it into disarray. While the original purpose of the pill was to prevent pregnancy, the data reveals an unanticipated side effect. The pill threw the mating market into disarray. Having sex and thinking about marriage have now become two quite different things. We now have a split mating market. 
one corner where people are largely interested in sex. And one corner where people are largely pursuing marriage. And there are more men looking for sex than women. And more women looking to marry than men. The language of online dating reinforces the reality of this split mating market. Men are more apt to write that they are looking for fun, while women tend to signal very different things. Saying things like, Only serious inquiries, please. Or, Not into games. So this split mating market poses a particular problem for women. They certainly call the shots when it comes to short-term sexual relationships because men outnumber them. This enables women to be more selective in the short term. But the reverse is true when they decide they want to settle down. We often hear about men's lack of commitment. But the blunt reality is an economic one. Women vastly outnumber men in the marriage market, which means men can be picky and can insist on extensive sexual experience before committing. Men are in a position to maximize their rewards while investing fewer resources. Why do men do this? Because they can. Here's the thing. In the past, it really wasn't the patriarchy that policed women's relational interests. It was women. But this agreement, this unspoken pact to set a high market value of sex, has all but vanished. But in a brave new world where having sex no longer means babies and marriage has become optional, the solidarity women once felt towards each other in the mating market has dissolved. Women no longer have each other's backs. On the contrary, they're now each other's competition. And when women compete for men, they tend to do so by appealing to what men want. Here's where women are wrong about men. Men are not actually afraid of commitment at all. While women are the gatekeepers when it comes to sex. The deal is that men are in the driver's seat in the marriage market. They can navigate it exactly how they want to. And unlike women's fertility, men's virility doesn't expire by 40 or 45 or 50 or even 60. Well, hello, young lady. So what's the rush? Talk about having the upper hand. So it should come as no surprise that the average age of first marriage in the United States continues to rise and that the share of Americans between the ages of 25 and 34 years old who are married is continuing to drop. While there are certainly factors that contribute to each of those trends, the gender imbalance in a split mating market is a big one. Talk about a profound irony. By nearly every measure, young men are failing to adapt to contemporary life. When attractive women will still go to bed with you, life for young men, even those who are floundering, just ain't so bad. In reality, men tend to behave as well or as poorly as the women in their lives permit. Economists say that collusion, women working together, would be the most rational way to elevate the market value of sex. But there is little evidence of this happening among women today. At least, not yet. If women were squarely in charge of how their relationships transpired and demanded a higher market price for the exchange of sex, so to speak, we'd be seeing, on average, more impressive wooing efforts. Greater male investment. Longer relationships. Fewer premarital partners. Shorter cohabitations. And more marrying going on. For a woman to know what she wants in a relationship and to signal it clearly, especially if it's different than what most men want, this is her power in the economy. But none of these things seem to be occurring. Not now, at least. Today, the economics of contemporary sexual relationships clearly favor men and what they want, even while what they are offering in the exchange has diminished. And it's all thanks to supply, demand, and the long reach of a remarkable little pill. Brought to you by the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. Yes, that is from the Austin Institute. 
Uh, I thought it deserved a little bumper music. Here you go. Little Georgia satellites on the podcast today. Kind of a classic rock theme, right? To the show. Sounds like some old-fashioned values, Russ. One thing I've realized is that to be an open-minded person, right? See, I was really defensive and I was really good at cutting apart other people's worldview. Like if somebody had some advice for me or people telling me about what God thought about sex, that kind of thing, I always could cut that argument to pieces with some quick wit. All right. But I didn't really evaluate my own system of thought when it came to sexuality. That's why I love that little lesson (laughs) that we just heard there. Right. Um, in social psychology, this is called confirmation bias. Um, and we, you have to be honest about your own um, prejudices, right? Confirmation bias is this. It's people's tendency to favor information that confirms their pre-existing views and ignore information that contradicts those views. All right? It's why you go into an argument with some people. You're just not going to change that person's mind. You, you realize that when you get to this certain point. But what I like to do is to, to lovingly get to know that person. How, how did I arrive at where I was before my view had changed on sexuality? Oh, Russ, you were just afraid of hell, right? You grew up with that Christian thing and you heard about hell and now you figured that you've got to be, right, you've got to be sexually pure, whatever it is. You don't want to go to hell, right? Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good argument. Maybe some of you may be thinking that. Uh, no, actually, I wasn't really afraid of hell. Um, I just assumed that's where I was going after a while, right? Like, I, there's all these rules that I have to do. If, God, if I can do these things, then then God will love me. Like, I can't do these rules. So I guess I'm just going to hell. And that had me run from God, not to him. Does that make sense? It all started with a little pill. That's an interesting way to end that little uh, speech, talk, lesson, news, whatever whatever that was. Um, I guess I would agree to a certain extent if they're talking about the birth control pill but I think it goes deeper than that. What is the deal with birth control? Um, I don't know if the Austin group is funded by Catholics, right? I don't know their worldview. I didn't really do that much research on the, the group themselves. I just thought it was an awesome little video of talking about the economy of sex. It's very generalized, I agree. Um, but generally speaking, I think they get a lot of this right, as well as the research in in the piece seems to be pretty solid. As a non-religious Bible-believing Christian myself, I don't see anything wrong with birth control, right, depending if it's in the right parameters. Um, The Bible says, yes, children are a blessing. That's true. But sometimes if you 
can't afford to contain the blessing, right? There's nothing wrong with using some modern technology to contain your blessing, right? Does that make sense? If you can't afford to have four kids, you probably shouldn't have four kids, right? And today, modern age, we can do something about that. It's not wrong or sinful to want to use birth control. Um, if you're married, right? See, it's like it reminds me of the, this Oprah Winfrey show, right? Oprah Winfrey is a, the single, it was a while back, she's one of the richest single women in the United States, if not the richest. Um, she has this TV show where one day she decided to give every person in the audience a free brand new car. All right, true story. And so everybody's freaking out and all excited until they find out that they had to pay the taxes on that vehicle, right? So, uh, blessing, yeah, wow, awesome. Thank you for the car. But there were some people in there who were, you know, poor. And when they were all of a sudden, hey, when they went to right, license the vehicle in their state or city, um, $2,000 worth of taxes is something that they couldn't afford. So, right, it was either give the car back or I guess Oprah ended up kicking in the extra money for the, the taxes. That's <laughs> what the hell the news played it out. But you get what I'm saying, right? That's part of a blessing. Do we have the ways and means to contain the blessing? That's why, again, as a Bible-believing Christian, there is biblical, right, argument in there to say that, hey, there's, if you can use birth control, um, go for it, Right? nothing wrong with birth control again inside a covenant marriage but that's part of the what we're talking about here is do people believe in God's way of doing sex right I mean that's part of my worldview is as I had this confirmation bias that I just kept arguing with how I thought that you know the biblical idea of sexuality was just so outdated and so um, unrealistic. Like, don't have sex till you're married. Come on, please, really. You think people really do that, right? Um, truth is, we're all sinners, right? People make mistakes. Um, we, whether whether you want to or not, you're going to sin against your creator. You can think you're good and you can think you're righteous and you can think you're a quote good person, but ultimately um, we don't measure up to the holiness of, of our creator. And that's part of this. See, we love sex, but we don't like the way God has it set up in his parameters to do sexuality. That is in the way of family covenant relationship I'm here with you for good forever again till death do us part this is part of the the Christian worldview how do we do that right that's one of the things how do we do that am I good enough to to pull this off I'm not man you know some of you know my story my wife and I just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary, but before we got married, um, we were living in sin, all right, for about six months. It was funny, my religious grandmother found out about it and, and said, my mom said she cried, right, because we were living in sin, and uh, my attitude was, um, 
okay, well, my mom got married a couple of times. So this whole uh, till death do we part thing is just lip service, isn't it? Right? Like, I, I just had a negative view of marriage because of my upbringing. Um, and, the, honestly, the people around my mom and my dad and so many people were divorced. And it just seemed easier than having a big wedding and a big a whole of blue, right, to live together. Um, and then my wife got pregnant. And I decided, not as a religious thing, but just, uh, I don't know, you know, it, it seemed like to me, I wanted my daughter to know that I was going to love her mom, all right? And that meant commitment. That meant, yeah, getting the ring, the date. And, and I wanted that that message to get into my daughter that, you know, I, I didn't want to take the the easy way of just simply living together and money could we afford a wedding no <laughs> i didn't have any money um we found a, a pastor in a uh, over by where uh, my mom lived and and she i guess knew this guy she owned a dry cleaner and he said he would marry us and for like a hundred bucks right and we went through like this sort of premarital counseling and uh, which was basically don't have sex for the next month or so Right, that was pretty much the gist of it, and he kind of, you know, asked us what we thought marriage was and stuff like that, which I thought was really cool. I can't really remember that much, um, but yeah, I, you know, we decided to get married, and we've been married ever since. Um, not because I'm varsity at, at uh, relationship, all right. Just the grace of God and the grace of my wife, and uh, just people that came alongside me because I'm a I'm a total mess all right I'm a I'm just halfway sane if that all right I'm like 40% sane maybe um, but honestly really if there's anything I want to leave this show with is that I want to encourage you that listen again God isn't up there trying to ruin all your fun all right god loves you you are more than your addiction all right giving up the porn all right this your brain on porn.com these testimonies of young men who are getting off of the pornography and finding that their you know same-sex attraction has been part of it was tied to it one guy's story another guy had, was on medication for ADD he quit using porn for 90 days he finally got to that point and and, and started right different purpose to his life a different drive to his life man you are not your addiction when you realize that and you stop living in this shame you can wake up Realize that you can fall in love with a woman, all right? Realize that you guys, you can do that. You can fall in love. You can be happy in the continued process of being in a relationship. Is it easy? No. Is it, is it, do you fall in love with someone and just, right? You stop looking at love as affection. That's another thing about my worldview. That's why I encourage you to become a Christian. Again, we, know that we're not all, right, we're not all evolved, most of us. 90% of us don't believe in what uh, atheist philosophers would call monism, right? Like, you're just a man, and there's no soul, and you can't prove it, so your mind invents things, and that's 
a lot of what atheist philosophers would say, that your faith is just a, uh, an unproven way that you deal with the pressures of life. And my answer to that is, okay, then why are so many people believing, all right? Are we just stupid? You've got all the answers. Um, there's something deeper going on than just what's going on in your head. Uh, you have a heart. You have a spirit. You have a soul. Most of us know that. You ask nine out of ten people if there's an immaterial part of you that's going to live on when you die, 90% of us will say yes. One of those people was uh, probably the smartest man who ever lived. His name was Albert Einstein. And he said that our consciousness, all right, he, he would call our spirit our consciousness. It can't just be snuffed out when your heart or your brain dies. There's something going on in us, energy-wise, that will live on. This is what Einstein believed, all right? Um, as a Christian, I've really wrestled with this. I wasn't a Christian all my life. I, I, yes, I did give my heart to God and my mind strayed away for a while because of the pressures of life and just stuff that I'd been taught and things that have happened to me. How could a kind, loving God have, right? I had to deal with these kind of issues. I had to grieve some things that happened in my childhood. There's a lot of shows where I go off on religion in this podcast, and I think part of that really was that grieving process, that this idea that God loves the good little children, right? That God, you know, if you, if you want to be okay with God, then you got to be good, and then God's okay with you. That's really not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, that's why I'm a Christian. It's grace. Grace isn't always fair, all right? But grace is the loving relationship that a father has for his children. We are loved. God is after you. All right? Your identity isn't as dirty little gross sinner that is stuck in your sexual proclivities. The way that that's broken is realizing that you're loved and you're created and there's a purpose for your life. And that's true. And yes, life is stressful part of worship, right? Your whole life is this pouring out like a, again, like a garden hose with no shutoff valve. We're just continually pouring out. That's our, our worship, our, our life. Part of bettering ourselves is worship and it's repentance. All right. Martin Luther said that all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. It's really obedience. It's getting back up when we're knocked down. It's it's turning back to God when we screw up. Not running from Him, but running to Him. Asking Him for more clarity and more peace and how to handle things better without, you know, our sinful, fleshy desires getting in the way, right? There's this story in the Bible, this picture of the, the apostles, and Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, right? He's going to be crucified soon. And he keeps hinting to this, right? And he keeps telling these guys, like, he's doing miracles, he's healing people, he, he feeds a bunch of people just from out of thin air. These kinds of miracles happen. These are documented in human history, by the way. It's the difference between Jesus and other historical figures, is that uh, there's a lot of stuff that he did that makes him 
all right? Very much different than any other teacher or philosopher of his day. And in John chapter 16, this is in verse 33, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Um, tribulation, right? That's a kind of a Bible word for stress, right? One of the things that happens when tribulation comes is stress. How do we deal with stress? There's so many studies and so much mounds of data and volumes of psychology written on what stress does to the human heart, psyche, whatever you want to call it. God loves us. He knows that life is going to be stressful. He doesn't come to take away our stress, but to help us to handle it in a spiritual way. And he doesn't condemn us for it. Again, he knows we're not going to handle it well all the time. And here's, check this out. This is from the Message Bible. It's basically the same piece of scripture that's um, translated into basically just common contemporary English. I love this. Check this out. Verses 31 through 33, John 16. Jesus answered them, Do you finally believe? In fact, you're about to make a run for it, saving your own skins and abandoning me. But I'm not abandoned. The Father is with me. I've told you all this so that trusting me, you will be an unshakable and assured, deeply at peace, in this godless world, you will continue to experience difficulties. But take heart, I have conquered the world, Jesus says. It's Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 24 through 27, the New Living Translation. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds their house on solid rock. Though the rain comes and the torrents and the flood waters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey is foolish, like a person who builds his house on sand. When the rain comes and the floods come and the wind beats against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. It's taking hold of and putting our faith in Christ. Not our ability to muster up enough willpower, right? It's putting our faith in Him. That's tangible, real, spiritual power that comes from Christ alone. Comes from submitting our lives to Him. Comes from loving Him and trusting Him and praying to Him and talking to Him. Alright? And... Listen, I want to apologize for some of my energy in the last few years in the show. Uh, I, I haven't been, like, you know, uh, talking with folks via email and I've chatted with some of you. And, man, I want to relate to you in a way that, man, a lot of folks listen because you realize I've been there, right? And I don't want to just be a guy shouting orders at you or shoulds and ought tos. I don't think that helps anybody. And I know what I should and ought to do. Help me do it, right? Be honest about where we mess up. I mean, that's important. My passion is to be more of a 21st century psalmist DJ.
This is from the New American Standard Bible. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts with my song. I shall thank Him. That's musical kind of energy. I love that. I'll leave you with this. This this passage is uh, one of my favorites. You know, it's, it's part of the compassion of God to us who struggle with, you know, just getting by in this jacked up world. Psalm 73, 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I love you guys. This is identity stuffed. This is who you are. Loved by the creator of the universe and the lover of your soul. Till next time, bye. Angry words and honking cars, satellites and falling stars, distant dark blue radios that whisper down my boulevards, ghosts and chains rattle in the attic, broken headphones filled with static, lonely room you've got nowhere to run. Three, two.